Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of the Healthy Metaverse. I'm very excited about this episode. We invited Dr. Ogira to be here with us today. Welcome, Brian. Thank you very much for having me, Aaron. Maybe we'll start by yourself, let the audience hear your background and how you find yourself using virtuality. Sure. My name is Brian O'Gara. I'm an anesthesiologist in intensive care unit at Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston. I've been practicing since 2015, and I found myself using virtual reality for applications in the perioperative arena during surgery and after surgery through collaboration with XR Health. You came and introduced yourself to our department, and we collaborated on plans for clinical trials. So I, actually, I, I was trying to remember how we, who introduced us and what was the original, and I think it was part of the, the Mass Challenge ecosystem mm. in Boston. My first question is, why or what made you think that VR can be relevant in your settings? The job of an anesthesiologist is not simply to administer medications to go to sleep and to have surgery. Our job is to help patients have surgery in a manner that is comfortable, that reduces fear and anxiety with good pain control, and then also is safe. And there's a balance in our daily jobs between administering medications to make the patient comfortable, but also doing so in a safe manner. And there are, of course, a lot of great benefits to safe anesthetic medications, but there are also risks. And one of those risks is over-sedation. And for the most part, most times, especially with the newer anesthetic agents, over-sedation can be recognized early and treated and reversed. But sometimes if it's not recognized or not treated promptly enough, it can lead to pretty severe consequences for the patient. And to avoid any possible over-sedation, it would be best to not administer any sedative drugs. But as we can assume, <clears throat> that would not be very comfortable for the patient. And so looking for other ways to help patients relax and stay calm and be comfortable during surgery without the use of medications is something that we are interested in. And so we thought that virtual reality immersion might be a means to achieve that without distracting from patient satisfaction, and allowing for a good patient experience. How do you measure today the level of anesthesia and propofol or any other type of anxiety reduction activities that they need to take? It starts with what type of surgery the patient is having. And so for surgeries that involve large incisions, abdominal surgery, spine surgery, brain surgery, lung surgery, heart surgery, those types of surgeries will often require general anesthesia because it's simply not possible for the patient to tolerate those, at least the vast majority of them while they are awake. But for other types of procedures, especially procedures in which uh, we can achieve anesthesia of a particular body part. For operations on the lower extremities, we can use spinal anesthesia to numb up that part of the body, or we can use nerve blocks up in the shoulder area to numb, numb your arm. There are uh, different levels of sedation that may be required, and that would depend on a conversation between you and your patient and, and your own clinical judgment as to what's required. Most of those procedures that that I described, so operations on your knee or your foot or your arm or your hand would generally be accomplished with one of those nerve blocks or spinal anesthesia and then some additional intravenous sedation as needed as determined by 
the provider and the patient in order to achieve some relaxation during the hour or two that you're on the operating table. And that particularly is where we thought VR could be effective. So for procedures in which you otherwise are not really feeling what's going on because you're the body part that's being operated on is numb, can we achieve that relaxation without the use of medications by using VR? So let's uh, let's walk the audience. So we had when we met, we had that idea of okay, let's try it out. That was like maybe let's start by you describing what type of surgery you thought would be the right one, why you thought that surgery would be the right one. And then I think I'll describe uh, for the audience a little bit of the product development and the different things that we faced when we tried to solve that problem of incorporating VR in the OR during an operation. Sure. Yeah. So I think part of what I described in terms of looking for the right surgeries, we thought that fitting the mold of of having an alternative means of making sure that the patient does not feel the surgery. So either with spinal anesthesia or with a regional nerve block or neuroaxial anesthesia to be very specific, where we would really only provide the intravenous medications to relieve anxiety fear or additional discomfort from lying on the operating table and being aware of what's happening and listening to the sounds, staring at the ceiling or the drapes. <clears throat> and of course, that can be a very uncomfortable experience for a lot of people. And being able to immerse the patients in, in a setting that is calming, relaxing, such as what you're about to describe, and likely distract them from all of those additional uncomfortable stimuli without the need for much medication. And so really in in those situations, in our first trial, uh, we did find that the medications administered to the patients in the virtual reality group for hand surgery was was much, much lower than the patients in the usual care group. And there was no difference in the amount of satisfaction between the two groups or, or in control of pain or anxiety. And so what that means to us is that it is possible to replace the intravenous sedation part of the anesthetic with something like virtual reality immersion without sacrificing patient satisfaction or comfort. I want to give the audience some maybe some background about the actual challenges that we faced, at least incorporating virtual reality in the OR. So I think first, most people still associate virtual reality with the gaming industry, and that's basically what what we did, right? We took an Oculus Go devices, which is the older version of the Oculus devices, and we needed to find a way to operate the virtual reality in the OR to make sure you have a communication line between the physicians and the patient without breaking the immersiveness. We needed to solve all the sanitation issues, which was also a big hurdle for us to incorporate the VR in the OR during an operation. We needed to face a battery life, right? It's like how to actually use the VR because if it's running out of battery in the middle of a surgery, that's also a, a no-go. So I, I think that what we faced is a very big challenge of taking off-the-shelf commercial product and actually how to adjust it to the use case that you just described. In your view, what was the most difficult thing operation-wise and product-wise that you think 
we could have done a better job at. I'm not sure how much of this was on your side versus just the design of the operating room in general, but I think one thing that we figured out pretty quickly was that the Wi-Fi connection in the hospital was not suitable for streaming high-quality content, at least the guest network. And then there was, a, of course, a lot of security issues around having the hospital approve staff level Wi-Fi access for an external company, especially when there's going to be any amount of data transferred from the headset to the company de-identified or not. So that took a long time to sort out. And then we ended up using cellular hotspots in order to create a isolated, unique connection for the headset that would be stable and wouldn't be interrupted by other requests on the network or interference with other equipment. So that was a big challenge. And then I'd say one thing that I would mention is that the orientation of the programs. And so the patients, all of our studies are all lying down flat, not even with their head up and talking through, is it worthwhile changing the orientation so that you're looking at the sky or you're looking at the surface of the water for the swimming with dolphins ones. Is that better from a from an orientation standpoint for the patient? Will they, in their equilibrium, or would it be better, more enjoyable to have it be the usual head up, standing up, sitting up orientation, even though you're lying down? So I thought that was interesting to talk through. It took us like two years to publish this, uh, the results of this, of this paper and work that we've been doing. What do you think the biggest criticism about our, the trial that we conducted? And how do you think we can address that in the next, or are we addressing that in the next clinical trial that we are conducting? Yeah, so I would say in the first trial, we didn't blind the anesthesiologist to which group the patient was in. Just double click on that for people that are not from the sure, medical sure. arena. When a patient is asleep or nearly asleep or mostly asleep, they, of course, may not be able to voice or express their desire for more sedative medications. And so it's up to the anesthesia provider, either an anesthesiologist or a, a nurse anesthetist to use their clinical judgment to administer additional medications. And there is some input there, especially when the outcome of the study is the dose of medications used for sedation. It's not just what the patient requires in their own words, so to speak. It's also what other people think they require, those clinical anesthesia providers. And if you can imagine a scenario where people have heard about the study and they, or even if they hadn't, and they walk in and somebody is wearing something designed to make them relax, they may be more hesitant to give more medications for sedation because they either believe or they don't believe that the system should be providing some of that work for them. And we thought it would be impossible, frankly, to blind the providers. We didn't think that it would be safe or appropriate to put headsets with no content on the patients who are in the control arm. And so we did it without blinding. And I think that was one of the biggest criticisms from a scientific rigor standpoint of the study. I think a lot of the feedback that we got was that it was a very interesting concept and that it was innovative and that it could potentially be important information for people. But from a scientific rigor standpoint, it fell short of the standards of some journals in order to publish. So I think that's why it took a while for it to get published. And I think we acknowledged in that manuscript more than once the limitation of blinding and what it means for the interpretation of the results. And we've now tried in our follow-up trials that, that we're collaborating on together 
to provide that blinding for the intraoperative trial. So we'll have three groups in the intraoperative knee replacement virtual reality trial, and all three groups will be wearing headsets and headphones and will be either experiencing immersive virtual reality content or music without any visual content or no content at all. And so the anesthesia providers will not know which group the patient is assigned to. And that will help alleviate that, that critique of, of the design of the trial from a scientific rigor standpoint. Can you walk the audience what other, so besides the knee replacement that you mentioned, what additional clinical trials we are doing now in order to prove the concept? Yeah, there are, we're trying, now that we've used the technology for patients having hand surgery, which is a very sort of routine ambulatory procedure, low risk, not a lot of complications. Now that we've proven that we can do that for at least in that setting, we've moved on to trying to apply this technology in groups of patients who are particularly at high risk for complications from sedation or opioid use. And so the knee replacement study is only in older patients. So pa patients who are older than 60, who are prone to complications from sedation, low blood pressure, uh, shallow breathing, but then also there's some controversy now in the anesthesia research community as to whether or not the amount of intravenous sedation that you require is related to cognitive problems after surgery, including post-operative delirium. Um, so trying to see whether or not this technique, which may lead to dramatic reductions in propofol use for older patients, has any effect on those outcomes and also patient satisfaction. And then the other study that we're looking at is trying to see whether or not the use of immersive virtual reality after weight loss surgery, so bariatric surgery, and improve the quality of the recovery from a patient's standpoint and reduce opioid use after the surgery. So the general trend, especially for weight loss surgery, is to avoid narcotics at all costs, but it may be something that is not particularly enjoyable for the patient because we simply just don't have a lot of other good, strong painkillers. And so we're trying to see if in that setting, if the addition of virtual reality can improve the patient experience and potentially further reduce the amount of opioids that are required. From your perspective, do you think a specific content is making a difference or the immersiveness of the VR that's what's making a difference? I think in my view of the literature, some of the other trials of intraoperative virtual reality that have not demonstrated success in reducing sedation requirements, they acknowledged them in their own papers was that they didn't have enough content. They had maybe some very immersive content, but it would end the loop after about 10 minutes and patients would be in the operating room for about an hour and a half. And you can even you know, even after that long watching the same thing over and over again, you begin to probably, I would guess, I'm not an expert in immersion, but you probably lose the effect of immersion if you're starting to notice things that are similar or on repeat. And so I think one of the biggest benefits of working with the XR software is the ability to load multiple different types of content into the queue and then manage it remotely with the mirroring software. And that will allow us to customize a program for the patient and then manage it for them in situations where they're not holding the device or the tablet or interacting with the headset very much themselves. We're managing that for them. And so I think that has likely led to a lot more 
I guess, for lack of a better word, stamina with the use of the program, sticking with it. And uh, I think that probably makes a big difference. I, I would say in terms of what patients like, they all like the swimming with dolphins one, and some of them like the guided meditation and breathing exercises and things like that. So people are pretty varied. Yeah, if we're taking it to the extreme, if we'll, uh, let's say, put uh, just a Netflix, do you think that would make the same impact or not? I know that there are different levels of immersion that people write about when they talk about virtual reality and the effects on the brain and distraction. And I think just based on my background knowledge of the topic, simply watching videos does not create the same level of immersion as the environmental experiences do, where you're, it certainly will be distracting in that you can't see outside of the headset. You're wearing noise-canceling goggles. You can really get into what you're watching for sure. But I think the sort of experience, the sort of out-of-body experience that people talk about when they're truly immersed in environmental content without being able to cite any scientific studies on the matter, I believe that's what people write about when they write about how virtual reality works is those types of experience that mimic real life are more immersive than simply watching a video. Interesting. I have to say, and also to the others, we are debating between ourselves with what making the difference here. On the product level, we just different types of decisions we can make, whether to invest more in a specific content or to invest more in having as broad library as possible, right? Where the content is just a commodity. And I have to say that I'm leaning more to that it's not a specific content. I, I do agree with you that it needs to be immersive, but I think I'm leaning more to variety element. Some patients have different preferences, right? And, and at the end, if you want to create relaxation type of experience where it's actually affecting the doses of the Pocophol, Whatever makes the patient relax, that should be the solution. Unless I think forcing him to swim with dolphins, that maybe for some people that can be very not a pleasant under the water type of experience. First, do you think VR can be a meaningful technology in this market? And second, assuming we can prove in a scientific way it is reducing the propofol levels or the any type of anesthesia levels. What could be the impact of the market? What could be the impact on patients on a large scale five years from now? Yeah, I think those are very good questions. How I see VR being implemented in the perioperative arena, if it were to be successful, I do think that there is a movement now, especially with opioids, to try and find different techniques to reduce patients' reliance on medications for comfort. And whether it's nerve blocks or music or meditation or wellness programs, prehabilitation focused on mental health and cognition, there, there is a, a trend for people to move away from the pharmacologic-based management of some of our more serious problems, especially for something like delirium. Behavioral interventions have actually been found to be more effective. And so I think if we can, and I'm saying we from the scientific community standpoint, and also you as an industry can carve out a niche where VR can be a part of that uh, behavioral intervention and focus on the fact that this is a patient-led intervention. It's something that they're participating in, choosing, managing their own content, things like that. It's very low risk, as we've seen in our studies and others. If you can prevent some of these very morbid and frankly costly complications through the use of interventions like immersive VR and other behavioral interventions, 
then I think they'll start to be emphasized by national societies and by hospitals, because let's be honest, if patients have good outcomes and it also saves money, then that's a win for everybody. And that's probably how I see it actually being implemented. Why do you think a hospital as a system is having a lot of barrier to injury and in order to incorporate new technologies? It takes 10 years to incorporate new technology in a hospital on average. Even though, again, you have all the clinical evidence and the FDA, but 10 years, that's like the average time that takes to incorporate. Why do you think this is the case? With any technology? or With most innovative technology, especially disruptive ones that are changing workflows in a hospital. Yeah. I think that there's always going to be resistance to change from the providers that are doing the work, right? They've been doing things a certain way for many years and I think especially at a place like the Beth Israel, it takes a high degree of evidence from clinical trials in order to get people to truly change their practice around things. And we're very skeptical because we read journal articles and we follow guidelines from our national societies. And we wouldn't necessarily take his word for something that it's a good idea outside of the context of the clinical trial. And so even though we were able to get our proof of concept study published, we're very far away from producing high quality data that suggests that it's effective for this purpose. And so we're very happy to have the opportunity to try with these next trials to do that. But those things all take time, right? So our small little 40 patient trial took a year or two, and then it took a couple of years for it to be published. And then people have to read it and then they have to decide whether or not they want to do incorporate it into their own practice or await more data. And I think in this case, it's best to wait for more data, quite frankly, even though it is very low risk and doesn't actually cost that much money comparatively to some of the pharmacologic management that we're doing for patients. And that that would be probably the barrier to most technologies. And then I would say on top of that, that if you're talking about on the local level, you need a local champion, right? You need somebody who believes in it, somebody who's done the research and somebody who can bring it to their department and or to the to, on a hospital level and say, listen, this is a this is something that we need to invest in. And that person, that champion, from a conflict of interest standpoint, can't be somebody who works for the company or has their own vested interest in the research, for example. So those are some things that can help. I think that the, what we found is, besides all the things that you mentioned about the, on the clinical side, I think we, as a company, we underestimate the business model and the workflows. As additional things that you have to address when you are trying to incorporate new technology. I think that's something that is highly important for companies from the industry to understand that even if you have clinical trials that are effective and you think they're good, even if you have an FDA clearance or approval, that still doesn't mean that someone will use the, your product. You mm-hmm. still need to go through some kind of a business model that makes sense. You still need to change workflows in the healthcare arena, especially in uh, highly complicated environments like the OR, that's very complex, especially if you want to scale a product to a point that is making any business sense. In this specific use case, I don't have the answer yet. So we even as a company, we don't have the answers to what I just mentioned. And all we know now is that, again, we need to continue on the clinical side, but we now understand we have to invest more also on the business workflows, how to incorporate the product and the platform. Any other things that you want to share with the audience or things that you want to ask me, feel free. 
Yeah. So I know we're focusing on the perioperative use case, but I know that you've done a lot of work for chronic pain and people in the outpatient setting. And so that, of course, affects many millions of people in the United States and around the world. So how are things going in that regard? For the audience that is listening, our main business today is that we are running our own clinics, VR clinics. That's 90% of our business and the other 10% is the different activities that we are doing with the hospital. And we are running a VR telehealth a clinic across the U.S. Clinical trial that we did with Betisrael and with you was basically the thing that started the telehealth platform. Because when we tried to design the platform to be effective in the OR, we needed a way for you guys to communicate with the patient without breaking the immersiveness. And we needed to use that highly secured Wi-Fi and we need to make sure that everything is stable. And then after that clinical trial, we said, you know what? We don't have to be in the same room. It's just, it's happened to be in the same room, but we can take the same platform and just put the clinician and the patient completely remotely. And that actually created then the sequence of events that ended up in our virtual clinics. And what we are seeing today in those virtual clinics, we are seeing the same results and the same feedback like you saw in the OR, just remotely. We are treating mainly pain management, chronic type of pain management, but also stress and anxiety, and also neurological disorders. And, uh, and ASD patients, we believe that the use cases of how to incorporate immersive technology in a healthcare settings, if it's outpatient, inpatient, it's really endless. But again, we underestimate the business model and the complexity and the workflows. There's no debate about the possibilities, right? There have been, uh, I think, over 1,000 papers showing different use cases in different settings with amazing results. But we as an industry, we need to take a now and notch up and say, okay, we have good understanding of how it can affect the clinical outcomes in different scenarios, but who, who can pay for this new device, how to utilize it and how to incorporate it to workflows. And I think that's part of the thing that we are trying to do as a company, but also as the entire industry. And more important, we need to let more people know that this is out there, more patients, more professionals, which what I'm trying to do with this podcast. Great. So I want to Thank you for your time. It was a very interesting uh, conversation. It was a pleasure. I'm sure that the audience will enjoy listening to this episode. I'm very excited to see the results of the new uh, clinical trial that are now in process. I'm very optimistic they will be as good as, but we'll see. Thank you for your help, for your support. And thank you everyone for that was chapter number two of the Healthy Metaverse. And I'm looking forward to see you next week. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Bye-bye.